You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. So we're in Genesis 45 today, and we're wrapping up the, um, the book of Genesis. Uh, you guys have just been here since the first time hop, the last thing that Ashley was talking about here in this building. If you've never been to the theater before, then you didn't start Genesis 1 with us, which has been quite the journey. And, um, and so, uh, believe it or not, we're wrapping it up in the next three sermons. Uh, yeah, Matt's happy about that. Um, and uh, we're going to start a brand new series in July called The Holy Spirit. And uh, I'm really excited about that. And, and uh, the Holy Spirit is God's personal presence and is the power to witness. And um, pray for me. I'm, there's a lot to be said, but uh, it's going to be a good time in July and into First Peter in the fall. Um, but um, we're kind of wrapping this up. Uh, Clay from Taiwan is going to be here next week. He is a mission partner who uh, is a blonde guy, speaks fluent Taiwanese, speaks fluent Mandarin. And uh, he has uh, actually had a lot of fruit over there, made a lot of friends with the Taiwanese national basketball team, which is a lot of fun. And uh, God has like opened up doors and he's a really awesome dude. So I hope you're here next week to hear from him. But um, the, the title of this last segment, I want to call Family, Neighbors, and Nations. Uh, because I believe in the last five chapters of Genesis, uh, if we peered into the pages, we would see a vision for church. And the last five chapters of Genesis is an epilogue that wraps up the story and tells us as the reader what the story was all about in the first place. And uh, it's a story of the brothers being united and not moving back home to Canaan, but actually being planted in the middle of enemies. The story of Genesis ends with the 12 brothers being united, emaciated, starving, hurting, uh, and, and somewhat uh, in, in shock from trauma, of all that it meant to sell your brother down to slavery and then be reunited and being forgiven again. And he takes that little family and he plants them. And by the time, wouldn't you know it, you open up to Exodus 1, uh, the family that he's planted in Egypt is not only surviving, it's thriving and flourishing. What does that mean? That he's planted a family in the middle of enemies and it's thriving. So uh, I went um, <clears throat> on a run this last week with my good, good buddy, Greg. Anybody know Greg Stewart, Greg and Liz? Liz. They got four kids. Uh, I love the people with the kids, man. And uh, so we're on a run, and he's got a farm. It's super fun, a TR, and he's, like, been working on it. He's got all the compost and the boots and the fun stuff, and he tells his kids, he teaches them wisdom, you know, of the Lord through farming because there's a lot there, I guess, you know. And he was telling me about this YouTube video called Back to Eden. It was pretty cool. Uh, I know everybody just tells you probably a documentary to watch. You've got to see this documentary about icebergs and, you know, Antarctica or whatever. But I, you know, but I'm a preacher, so I need these illustrations. So I went in there, and I, um, I looked at it, and it's, it's a story about a guy named Paul Galoush or something like that. And um, he moved from L.A. to Washington, and um, he couldn't find any soil to plant his farm. Uh, and he dug a well, and there wasn't enough rainfall. And so um, he was sort of at a loss because it was a big thing in his family. He wanted to learn. He wanted to farm. And he felt the Lord. He's a Christian. He felt the Lord speak to him. And he said, Paul, you're looking in the wrong spot. Don't look in the ground. Look at the woods. And uh, so he did. He went out there in the woods. And there were real shallow tree roots there, but he found out the trees were still thriving, even though it was shallow roots. And, 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 and the trick was that he looked underneath the thatch, like the kind of like wooded areas of all the leaves and stuff, and he found uh, basically the secret to their growth. And I guess the secret's not really a secret. Uh, the secret's the soil. Underneath this thatch was this rich, he called it black gold soil, that uh, anything could grow in. And uh, he has this belief, uh, it's actually, he thinks, biblical in the sense that uh, in Genesis 3, when it says the ground is cursed, it says that one of the first things that man does is he tills the soil. He seizes control for himself, and he starts to dig at that soil and try and make it into what it is. And he says the soil uh, is self-sustaining and doesn't need to be tilled, is what his philosophy is. And he says if, if it were covered, 
is what he says. And the soil wouldn't need to be weeded. It wouldn't need to be churned. It wouldn't need to be watered. It would just feed itself. And as a matter of fact, this back to Eden method has kind of become a bit of a, um, a movement. So much so that uh, farmers have even been able to use it using wood chips and scattering it on the ground to plant gardens in the middle of deserts. Isn't that a conundrum? <laughs> Isn't that a spectacle? To plant a garden in the middle of a desert. I mean, like, fish don't, I mean, like, birds don't swim. You don't take a bird and say, hey, like, here, little bird, swim, you know? And fish don't sit up there and nest, and gardens don't grow in deserts. It would be quite a spectacle if you were in the middle of a desert and, uh, you know, decided to plant a sunflower or something like that and bank your life on it. I mean, bank the promise of God on it. And then come back in three years and find out the sunflower didn't only survive, it thrived. Uh, this is what Exodus 1 says when we're not going to go through Exodus, but, you know, Exodus 1 says in, um, in uh, recourse of Genesis 50, uh, Exodus 1 says this in verse 6, it says, Joseph and all of his brothers, the ones that we've been talking about, they all died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. I mean, they didn't just survive, they thrived in Egypt. They flourished. And they multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was flooded with them. I mean, just absolutely flooded with these emaciated, small little children, these little brothers who couldn't barely keep themselves above water. They were ready to die on the edge of death in the famine. They barely had enough. They had a couple of honey nut Cheerios down on a cart back from Egypt to survive. Everything was riding on Read there, they had one more roll of the dice, and they didn't only survive, they thrived. And the covenant says in Genesis 17 that Israel wasn't in Egypt on accident in the first place. They were planted there. Do you remember that? It said for 400 years you're going to live under the slavery, and it's not by accident. It's on purpose. I'm planting you there. I'm putting you there for a purpose. And so what would it mean to find a garden thriving in the middle of Egypt? And what would it mean for God to plant his people in the middle of enemies? Because fish don't live in the sea. Or, excuse me, birds don't live in the sea and fish don't live in nets and gar- nests and gardens don't grow in deserts. And what would it mean that a family would thrive in the middle of their enemies other than God is making the claim that Pharaoh's not sovereign and that he is? What else is the message that's being spoken into the ages except this, that Egypt is the pawn and Jesus is the king? And Pharaoh never had any of that control in the first place. And Potiphar's wife didn't have anything to give him in the first place. And that God is sovereign over the dream and he's the only one that can deliver it. And so he's written that story to us because Joseph isn't just one man. Their story is our story and his story is our story. It's because we're always being planted in Egypt and not just to survive, but to thrive right in the middle of enemies, to be a spectacle of mercy and sovereignty in the nations. Because if, if Joseph is alive, then Pharaoh's not in charge then God is who he says that he is, and God will do what he says he's going to do, that Pharaoh is not sovereign and that Jesus is. And he, he puts him against Pharaoh because guess what? We all have Pharaohs in our life, right? You all, we all in this room have people that push and push and push and bully. And they're hot and they're cold one minute and the next, and they, and they throw around their power and authority and they're pushing you and they're pushing you and it's not an accident because God planted you next to Pharaohs so you'd thrive next to him. It's not an accident. You've been tempted this week by more than Potiphar's wife. You've been on Instagram with FOMO disease, wondering way off in the distance, maybe this whole faithful thing isn't working out. Look at all these people that get what I work for so hard for free. Maybe you've been tempted and tested and tried in, in more than just Potiphar's house. And you've been pulled and pulled and pulled. And he's put you there and he's saying, I'm planting you there, not just to survive, but to thrive. Maybe you've been with brothers that have backstabbed you and betrayed you and family that should have loved you most and hurt you most. 
But yet, in his spirit, you are revived today because God is who he says that he is and God is doing what he said he's gonna do. And that means that that little family is not surviving because of the surrounding, but because of the soil that they're rooted in. The secret is in the soil. The secret is not in the atmosphere. The secret is not in the sun. The secret is not in the, in the air. It's in the soil. That's where the secret is. That's where the health is. And so uh, I believe in the pages of Genesis as a vision for church. I believe their story is our story. And I believe that the reason you're in, in Greenville is not an accident. It's on purpose. And you're planted here to thrive in the middle of your enemies. You're here to thrive in the middle of pharaohs, in the middle of temptation and testing and trial, right? Because you are rooted in a different kind of soil. And Genesis is, a, is, a, is an epilogue. It just, it, it tells us what the story meant and it tells us where the characters are headed and it tells us really, therefore, his story and our story combined. And it's telling us that we are thriving and not dying today and we're revived today because we're planted in the soil of the Spirit. We're planted first in the soil of unity. We're gonna look at the scripture today of how how these 12 little starving brothers turn into a great nation of thousands in just 400 years in the middle of a desert because of their soil. They're planted, not in the soil of hostility, but in the soil of unity too, that they're planted, not on accident, but on purpose, in the soil of surrender, in the soil of I can't, but God can. Yeah, Joseph's story is not just his, it's ours. And it is telling us the testimony means he'll do it again. And what he's done for one, he'll do for us. And, and, and it's placing us in this soil of surrender. And lastly, the God's garden thrives in the middle of deserts because his soil is shepherding. And he's planted his family in, in the soil of shepherding. So Genesis 45, pick, picking up in verse 16 as we close up this book. It says, when the news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all his officials were pleased. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, tell your brothers to do this. Load your animals and return to the land of Canaan. But... Bring your father back and your families back to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt so you can enjoy the fat of the land. So the sons of Israel did this and Joseph gave them carts as Pharaoh had commanded. And he also gave them provisions for their journey. To each of them, he gave new clothing. But to Benjamin, the one they hated and the one they were jealous of and the one that the father favored against all the other ones, he gave a double portion. He gave them 300 shekels of silver and five sets of clothes and this is what he sent to his father. Ten donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and other provisions for his journey. And then verse 24 says that he sent his brothers away and as they were leaving, he gave them some parting words of advice. Don't quarrel along the way. If you read this story, if you've been along with us or read the book of Genesis before, you've got to smirk at a statement like that. It's kind of like somebody at the shipyard yelling to the Titanic before it takes off. Watch out for icebergs, you know. Like, it's the critical problem within this family. It's not just been the challenge, it's been the cancer. It has been the absolute obstacle to the blessing. It's not the battle around them, it has been the battle within them. It has been the hostility that comes from rivalry, the rivalry that comes from the favoritism within the family, and the favoritism that ultimately comes from the idolatry. All the way back to Abraham, Abraham favored and loved Ishmael instead of Isaac, right? And Isaac did the same thing, just like his father before him, and he loved, he loved uh, his son Jacob, more than Esau. And the rivalry led to hostility, and hostility led to bitterness, and bitterness led to control, and control led to violence. Like, the same thing that Cain killed Abel for is the same thing that inherited into the family of God. Even the family of God that was meant to be a blessing could only bring cursing on itself because the idolatry always leads to hostility, and hostility always leads to rivalry. 
And it passes on even from Jacob into Joseph. He loves Joseph and Benjamin and Rachel and none of the other ones, and it almost gets him killed. And so the fickle, precarious nature of the promise rests in the balance of these silly people. And they can't seem to get over this one simple sermon. Don't quarrel. So the Bible has, um, has diagnosed for us, and it's, and it's been, uh, been kind of hard, I mean, to be honest, to confess to you, you know, to preach uh, this concept because, you know, it's like really hard to make relevant because none of us are really ever jealous of anybody, you know, anymore in 2021. It's like a completely irrelevant. So every Saturday night, I'm like, how am I going to get down to these people? What it's like to be jealous, go through an Instagram post and wish you were somebody else or somewhere else because that never happened. I mean, FOMO is not a thing right now. Insecurity and inadequacy, that's not a thing that City Lights deals with. So we're just moving on. We're just going to cover it because scripture talks about it, but it's not relevant to us. So we're just moving on. And so, and so the, the scripture visits us and it's telling us it's not a problem, it's the problem. The principal problem uh, and uh, obstacle to advancing the promise of God is not organization and money and, 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 and even vision. Or, or It's like, it's division. It's hostility within the camp, within the family of God. And so uh, James 4 diagnoses it this way. He says, um, church, what causes, he, he asks this question. This is James, brother, half-brother of Jesus, he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Why did Joseph have to say what he had to say? Why did he have to say that? What causes these quarrels? He says, don't they come from your evil desires? In other words, isn't the quarreling just a symptom, not really the source? Isn't what's on your lips really the product of what's on your heart? Isn't, isn't hostility really rooted in idolatry? He says, you desire what you don't have, so you kill. And maybe not like, you know, cold blood kill with a knife or something like that. But, you know, you snub them and cut them off and roll your eyes and talk about them and gossip about them. It's like, isn't that what we do, right? We divide. We don't unite. It's like the Christian faith is like the most divided faith in all of the world's denominations in the churches and even inside the churches. There's little cliques and subcultures, da 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 And he says, that's not an accident and that's not unique to you because hostility always comes from idolatry. And it comes because you desire something on, that you want that you don't have and you try and take it on your own. So you covet, but you can't get what you want. So you quarrel and you fight, and you do not have it because you do not ask God for it. And even when you ask for it, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend it to get what you want in your own pleasures. So what the scripture is saying to us is that Christians love Christians, but they love certain kinds of Christians. They love Jesus, but they love Jesus and this other little thing, right? So whatever it is, it's like saying that Christians love Jesus and Christians, and they, and they love especially, though, Christians that are intellectual because they value that, and they see the major problem with um, whatever it is, church or society or inadequacy of people is that, um, is that, you know, we're illiterate and we're not thoughtful and we're just hillbillies and blah, 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 blah. And so they don't say it out loud, but deeply inside of their heart, they love Christians, but they especially love intellectual Christians. And the intellectual Christians are the ones that really get it. And everybody could just be intellectual. We'd be in a good spot, right? Because that's the goal. Or is there's, there's spirit-filled Christians, right? And so there's this pecking order where um, I had a really incredible experience with God. And that meant a ton to me. And that allowed me to come into his presence and fall in love with his heart. And I want that from other people, right? But the ministry could become the idol, and inside of my heart, I love Christians, but I especially love spirit-filled Christians. And I'm impressed when those types of people talk because that's really 
where it's at, right? The other side is the Bible side, right? The Bible side is, I love all Christians, but I really love people that can parse the word, you know? And if not, I'm gonna roll their eyes at them and they're not really, da, 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 and they're second class. And scripture says there's no such thing as Bible Christians or spirit Christians, Republican Christians or Democrat Christians, hipster Christians, organized Christians, right? Bible Belt Christians, left coast Christians, liberal Christians, right? There's only, if it's the death, burial, and resurrection, there's only brothers and sisters. And the critical cancer is not a better campaign. It is unity. This is, what, this is what Jesus says. We might take his advice, right? So Jesus says this. He says um, to his disciples in the upper room and to the disciples that are gathered in this room today, in John 17, verse 22, I have given them much glory, says Jesus. They have the opportunity to bring heaven to earth. They have this glory that, beyond, that goes beyond them, that, that, that is beyond them. And, uh, and so this glory you've given me and I've given to them. And my prayer is that they would be one. That those that are 25 Sweetbriar and those in the upper room and those that are in all the different churches in Greenfield, that they would be one under the sun. That all things might be united in Christ. In the verse 23, he says this. He says, I and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity is what Jesus says. And then he says this really remarkable statement. Follow this. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Did you catch that? Did you catch in John 17 that Jesus basically just said that the best evangelistic strategy, the way he intends on allowing other people to see who he is, is unity in the church? Did you see that? He's saying that we're going to gather around in a conference and we're going to ask, how are we going to see the nations come to Jesus? And he's saying the answer is unity. You know, like you'll go to the big conference and um, they'll have the different speakers and somebody's going to go like, we got to go feed the poor. Like we're going to go... Because Jesus fed the poor, and people need to see that um, God loves people, and it's not about you know rich people or poor people, and so we got to go feed the poor, and that's going to communicate the thing, and everybody cheers, and everybody's crazy, and then the next person says it's intercession, man. We got to go get in the room, and we got to intercede, and man, we're the ones that get it, and they're not the ones that get it. We're going to pray, and if we pray, then heaven's going to come, and then we're going to get it, and, and then there's another person, then there's Bible people. We're going to parse the verbs and get the doctrine right, and get them all, and turn them from you know Kiwanis, and get them all going from Bible club, and it's like everybody has the mic, and then Jesus stands up in the mic, right, and everybody cheers, and Jesus stands up, and there it's like what is it? And he goes. Love one another. Like that's his brilliant plan. Is that in the middle of John 17, his high priestly prayer, he's saying that the advancement of the kingdom is fundamentally coming because of unity of the church. The best news for the gospel in Greenville is that the church is unified. And when the church is unified, Jesus is saying that that is how the world will know that I have sent them and I am in them. That we would be one just as he is one. And so, how are we thriving? How does the church, how does the church in a time like this going to thrive uh, in a time when we live uh, next to and live with pharaohs and potiphers and all these other pieces, places? How are we going to thrive as a church in the desert? And Jesus' answer seems to be it has something to do with unity. You know, we're in a time where we've had to, in recent years and months, uh, do church online, YouTube online. You guys ever watch a church service online? Have you, have you experienced this? It's kind of crazy. I've hosted a church service online. Not my favorite. I'll be honest. And, uh, and so there's this experimentation, and I think we figured out pretty quickly that church isn't just YouTube. It's not just a talking head, right? Church is something more than that. And, um, and essentially, I, I get the sense that we are trying to, right at the cusp of that, trying to figure out um, uh, how to do church with all kind of the unnecessary baggage and, and hard things that we've, we've 
all been through when it comes to organized church, when it comes to showing up at a place at 10 o'clock in the morning and figuring out how to do life together with people that are not the same as you, right? And we're trying to figure that out. And I had a guy, you know, like most of the time people aren't honest with you as a pastor because they like pull punches, you know, but sometimes they get fed up with you and they really tell you what they think, you know? I was in Publix the other day and this guy comes up to me, he's like, Oliver, like, why do we really do church, man? Like, what is it? Like, like I'm at home right now and I'm, you know, I'm decently happy. I got my small group, you know, and I'm doing that. I'm doing ministry and I'm loving my neighbor and all that kind of thing. And I'm even teaching my kids. Like I got my Jesus Storybook Bible and I'm actually teaching them for the first time. I feel like I'm taking accountability from my family. So you answer for me, Mr. Pastor Guy, right? Why are we at church? And I didn't have an answer for him. I had like, you know, when you get the comeback on the way home and you're like, man, I wish I would have had that, right? I just like, I don't know. Bless you, dude. And I love you. And that's all I had to say, right? That's what I said. And it was what the spirit wanted me to say at that moment. But what I would have should have said is like, the reason why we have church is because church is about the nations and church is about the generations and church is about the different gifts. And when we're in the little small group of us four and no more, we don't get the generations, we don't get the nations and we don't get the gifts. And we are always trying to figure out how to do church alone. That has been the story from Abraham all the way to Jesus is the brothers want to do Jesus without the brothers. They don't want to do they don't want to do faith with the one next to them. They don't want to do the one anothering. And so there's all sorts of reasons and ways and vehicles that we're trying to do church alone, but church is never meant to do alone because to thrive in the desert, you have to be planted in unity. You have to be planted in someone you'd be hostile with so that the hostility would reveal your idol, that you love Christians, but you especially love smart Christians. You especially love hipster Christians. You especially love conservative Christians. You especially love Democrat Christians, right? He's calling you out on that. And when you're doing that, you can do it in a small group, but you can't do it in the 120. You can't do that. You can't say, oh, we're just going to be the teaching church in the 120 because there's some prophets in there and the prophets worthy of honor too and they're part of the fivefold, right? So the gifts and the nations and the generations, they'll suffer if the church is not unified and God is saying that if there's anything that I'm doing in your life, in this brother's life through plague and famine and sword, is to get you guys on the same page. And so just consider with me the 58 whatever one another's. I'm just going to read them real quickly to us. And consider God's vision for how he advances the kingdom. There's the big seminar, and then he gets up, and he's got a simple message for us. Don't quarrel. This is the, it's real simple. What's the vision, state of, vision statement of your church? Vision statement of our church is uh, don't quarrel. You know, this comes from Genesis. Right? And we're changing the world by not quarreling, believe it or not. 17 times it says love one another. Romans says to honor one another. It also says to have harmony with one another. It says to build one another up. Thessalonians says to be like-minded with one another, to accept one another. I mean, there's just no seminar in this thing. Like, here's a five-point how to get your first impressions team set up. I mean, we're going to do all that stuff. But the heart of this thing is the one another. The heart of it is the family. That's why we do what we do. Greet one another, care for one another, serve for one another, forgive one another, be patient with one another, be kind to one another, compassionate one another. Ephesians says to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, to submit to one another, to allow others to have their way before you, to consider others better than yourself, to bring up them in conversation, to ask how they're doing and listen and bear with one another and to comfort one another and encourage one another and exhort one another, to stir one another up into love and good deeds, to have hospitality with one another, to enjoy the gifts that God has given for the benefit of one another, to clothe yourself in humility with one another, to confess your faults and sins to one another. Do you think that God has something to say about the soil of unity? connected to the thriving of the church. So the emaciated brothers have been broken and broken and they've been pushed and pushed and prodded to realize that it really wasn't about the famine, it was always about the family. He wore those guys so thin so they needed to finally need each other. And they were united in that place to move to Egypt to thrive in the one anothering. And so the story continues, it says, so they went up to Egypt and they came to their father Jacob and in the land of Canaan and they told him this remarkable news. Joseph 
is still alive. Can you imagine hearing this as a father? Joseph, your son, is still alive. In fact, not only is he alive, he's the ruler of all of Egypt. He's the secretary of treasury. He's the secretary of state, says, this, says these brothers. They come home in this cart. Jacob was stunned, he says. He didn't even believe him. It's like, put yourself in his shoes. He's a dad. He lost his only son, his youngest son that he loves. And it was sent off into Egypt, and he was supposedly killed by wild wolves, and all you had was a robe that was covered in blood. At least you thought it was your son. And a little cart comes back. He sent it off to go get some Cheerios just to make it through the famine, man. I mean, just to, just to get a little help from my friends when I'm trying to go through a hard time. And it comes back, and not only does it have all the riches and the clothing and everything and all your brothers intact, it also says that the son that you lost is actually still alive. Where are you at right there? He's still alive, and not only that, he's ruling and he's reigning right now in Egypt. I mean, there's certain things like chance, and then there's another thing called luck, and there's another thing called good fortune, and then there's just doggone sovereignty, man. There's design. What in the world just happened that my son I thought is dead is not only alive, he's thriving, and he's reigning, other than the fact that Egypt is a pawn and Jesus is the king. There's no other conclusion you can draw from that. If my son that I thought was dead just got carted off to Egypt and he's now lifted up to the highest thing in the land, God must be in control. And so he has to do some thinking. He goes back to his father's father's promise. He goes back to the remembrance that he was going to be a blessed nation. And sometimes the promises of God are the things that we just forget. Like it's not that we don't know them, we just don't forget them or we don't live there at least most of the time. And he's forced to remember that promise. And the scripture says that he wasn't just relieved, he was revived. I mean, this doesn't just mean that I'm going to have a couple more birthdays with the son. It means that God is who he says that he is, and God will do what he says he's going to do. Do you see that? There's something even more, like Lakin was sharing earlier. Like, it's not just about the healing. It's about the promise. Because it's what he's done before he's going to do again. And so what has met Jacob is not just the good news that his son is home. It's the good news that King Jesus is on the throne. And not just around Egypt, but through Egypt and through all of the hard times in the palace and the pit, God is working out his plan for good because he is who he says he is and he's doing what he says he's going to do. And so this is how Israel responds. And I think it's how we would respond too if we really let it sink in. If Joseph is alive, then Pharaoh is not sovereign. And if Joseph is alive, then God is who he says that he is. And so verse 46 says that Israel set out with all that he had and he goes to a place called Beersheba. And it says he offers all of his sacrifices to God, the father, uh, God of his father Isaac. We're reminded of this place, Beersheba, because this is the place where Abraham goes at the end of his life. He plants a tree at Mamre, and he digs a big well. A well is a rooted thing. It's a deep thing, and it goes down beyond the generations, and it has this ownership. And Abraham was largely just staking claim in the story right there. that He was going to bury himself in the God's promise, and he was going to put his life on that place, and he came to this place, and he, and he sacrificed at the end of his life. And Isaac, his father, did the same. And so this deep well is a surrender place for his family. And the same place that God has led Abraham is the same place that God has led Isaac, and now it's the same place that God has led Jacob. And Jacob, at the end of his life, finally hears the God, God speak to him after he's wrestled with him so many years ago. God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and says to him, Jacob, Jacob, and Jacob responds with these words, have you heard these words in the Bible before? Here I am. I believe that those words are the highest commodity in all of heaven. I believe that Jesus is doing miracles left and right and raises dead bodies, but that's the greatest miracle is for a heart to actually turn and say, here I am. Because in those three words, in those three words is a prayer ultimately of life surrender. It's the bringing of all things before a promise and saying, all that I have and all that I am 
is everything to me, but it's not enough. Essentially, the surrender prayer is this, is that all of my accolades and all of my skills and all of my personality, all of my money and my wealth, all of my strength has been exhausted. And I found out in 50 and 60 and 70 years, just like my father and my father's father before me, that you are who you say you are and you're doing what you say you're going to do. And I've realized that everything that I have in my hand, as much as I would like it to be, it's not enough because I need you. And there's a beautiful place, a birthplace of the place of surrender when a person comes to the end of the rope. Jesus says that the poor in spirit are blessed because when we find the end of ourselves, we find the beginning of God's sovereignty in our life. At the place of poverty of spirit is where we inherit the kingdom of God. And so this is a beautiful place that God has spared no expense to bring Jacob and us is to bring us to the place of here I am. It's the prayer of Samuel. It's the prayer of Abraham. It's the prayer of Isaac. It's the prayer of Jacob. It's the place that God is always bringing us, the, the sacred place. It's the soil of surrender. Because God knows that he's planted you next to a few pharaohs, right? Do you have a pharaoh in your life? Do you have somebody that's been pushing on you? He's planted you there on purpose to show you that pharaoh is not really king. Like, all these stories are written because the scripture knows us better sometimes than we know ourselves. And you have uh, people in your life that are pharaohs, and pharaohs are people that have power without authority. And they basically are trying to use their might to make right and push you and push you and push you. And they use sarcasm and they use gossip and they use anger and they use whatever it is that they can push you. And God's not surprised by that because every Joseph has a pharaoh and then so do you. And the test is not original to our family. It is our story and our test as well. Do you have somebody, right, who is, um, who is tempting you? And, um, and sometimes it's, it's a painful thing to see a promise unfold, you know, in somebody's life and somebody else gets what you've been waiting on. They get it for free and you've been working and working and working. And you realize all that you have is not enough. And you come to the end of yourself. And God is saying, you know, in this place of Beersheba, in this deep, sacred place, he is, he, is, he is inviting us to recognize that he has not wasted and expended any of that pain. He has brought us to that place so we could finally say this, these three words, this prayer, here I am. Do you have a couple of brothers in your life, the ones that should have loved you most, that hurt you most, the ones that should have had your back but stabbed you in the back instead, instead right? And this test is not original to us and not original to Joseph. This is the place that we'd come to this well of Beersheba and understand that if Jesus is alive, it changes everything. And none of that stuff, none of that stuff was ever in control. If Jesus is alive, then Egypt is a pawn. And those neighbors and those enemies and those friends and those frenemies and those family members are all there to test you and wasting no expense. So you would come to this place and say, here I am, all of me. Have all of me because I know that all of me is not enough and I surrender to your dream. And that is the tough part about it because Joseph did not have the option to exit, right? That's the thing is that Joseph was planted there and he couldn't go anywhere about it. And it would have been easier. It would have been easier to, to be in Egypt and just assimilate, to just put on the eyeliner and get tan and, you know, whatever they do, lift a bunch of weights and move a bunch of wheels over there in Egypt or whatever they did and just become rich and live off the fat of the land. But he had to be dwelled in the promise and so Joseph didn't give in. At the same time, it would have been easier, right, to take control. And, and he would have known that Potiphar's wife was going to try and tempt him and turn him into prison so he could have gone around her and gotten her in trouble and tried to, like, start calamity and so forth. But instead, he was not supposed to take control, but rather he was supposed to trust. And so right there in the middle is that crux, right? Because in, in the world and not of the world, it would be easier just to give in, just to play the music, just to be a part of, the, of what Paul calls the powers and the principalities of the air, it's as thick as the air around here. And it's easy just to give in and just do what everybody else is doing. 
Because it's hard to watch somebody get what you're working so hard for for free. And it's just easier sometimes to just give in. But God has not called Joseph to give in, nor has he called Joseph to take control. Think about the complicated relationship. Joseph calls Pharaoh master. He blesses Pharaoh and treats Egypt like it's his own. He has solidarity in Egypt and he is not separate. He is integrated and he has staken his welfare in the middle of Egypt. In other words, Egypt's salvation is Israel's salvation as well. And so he does not have the opportunity to just take control or to assimilate. Rather, he has to uh, surrender right in the middle of that place, right? So the two ideas would be one is to take control. The other one is to give in. But the last one would be to let go. And that let go place is the hardest spot to live, right? To sit there in the edge of loyal love towards Pharaoh. Loyal love. Kindness is what it called. It's hesed. This love that Joseph has and Abraham has for Pharaoh. Loyal love, but resilience. It's not taking control and it's not giving in but it's showing up and letting go. And I wonder what kind of faith it would take for us to approach our Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays and Fridays and all of these people that we have in our life and not to take control and not to give in, but to stand firm, to stand firm in this place and say, all that I am is not enough, but you are enough. What I can't do, God, you will do in me. And this is the promise that Jeremiah would have had, uh, that, that Daniel would have read, even in Nebuchadnezzar. In that same exact circumstances, Pharaoh was, as Joseph was in, Daniel would have been in the same, right? And this is the promise. It's not to take control and revolt, Right? There's option A, it's to revolt and kick back and fight back. Option B would be to give in and assimilate. But to surrender right in the middle, this is the vision that Jeremiah gives uh, to the church. And at that day, even the prophet Daniel would have read it. It says in Jeremiah um, 29.4, this is what the Lord Almighty says uh, to um, the God. This is what the Lord Almighty says, the God of Israel. And he says to all those he carries off into exile. Right? So God actually planted them there. He was the one that brought them into exile, first in Egypt and then in Babylon. He says, from Jerusalem to Babylon, this is what you are planted to do. You're planted to build houses, to settle down, to plant gardens, and to eat what they produce. Anyone here work for Michelin? Right? So Michelin isn't a non-for-profit church, right? but we are still getting fed. I'm going to go to Publix right after this. I'm going to go down there and get fed at Publix. It's going to be great. And what it's saying is that... Um, You are going to reap what you didn't sow, and you are going to live in an alien and a strange place. And you are not going to exit, but you're going to build. You're going to build houses. You're going to settle down. You're going to plant gardens. You're going to marry and have sons. You're going to have daughters and find wives for your sons and give daughters away in marriage, and you're going to be fruitful and multiply. You're going to be a garden in the middle of the desert. You are going to, as it says in verse 5, increase and never decrease. Also, you should not revolt and repay evil with evil, But as Romans 12 tells us, to repay evil with good. Because God is sovereign and Pharaoh is not. And it's not that you trust Pharaoh, it's that you trust me. And in that place, you are giving a testimony to be planted in the middle of enemies. Because your soil is in the soil of sovereignty. Your soil is not in the soil of politics. Your soil is in the soil of here I am. You're the here I am person. And deep down in your knower, in that well of Beersheba, you have made an oath and a claim to me. And you're going to increase and not decrease and you're going to bless and not curse. And so you're going to return evil with good. And so in doing, heap coals on people's heads is what uh, uh, Paul says. But you're going to seek prosperity in in, in the land because in its prosperity is your prosperity. In its blessing is yours. So, back to the story. It says, uh, God says, I am God, the uh, the God of your father. This is um, God speaking to Jacob in response to his prayer. He says, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation. You look like a starving bunch of uh, brothers, but I'm going to make you into a great nation. And I will go down to Egypt with you, and I uh, will um, surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. And, uh, And then Jacob left Beersheba, and Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives in the carts of Pharaoh and sent um, 
them to transport him. So Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt, taking uh, with them their livestock and their possessions they had acquired in Canaan. And Jacob brought with him to Egypt his sons and his grandsons and his granddaughters and all of his offspring. Now there's a long section here that you're going to read in your Bible if you had it in front of you of like basically the tree, of, the family tree of Jacob. And it's all of his sons and there's a bunch of numbers and we're going to skip right on through it. Uh, don't do that in your quiet time. Just read through and it's going to be great. But for now, we're skipping through. And verse 26 says this, And those who went to Egypt with Jacob, those who were in his direct descendants, not counting his sons' wives, numbering 66 persons. And then verse 27 says, With the two sons who had been born to Joseph in Egypt, the members of Jacob's family, which went to Egypt were 70 in all. There's a, um, a passage in the middle of Genesis uh, chapter 10 called the Table of Nations. And if you were to turn there, there's a whole bunch of uh, nations that I can barely pronounce of all the people that are scattered from Babylon. But we're supposed to make this connection at the kind of beginning of Genesis and now at the end of Genesis that for every 70 nations that are in the Table of Nations, there are 70 sons and descendants that were released. That the Table of Nations has, has been planted, or rather is being implanted with the family of Jacob. And then for every nation, there's a son that floods it. For every nation, there's a family member that's going to flood into these nations to find salvation for these nations through the family that he promises. And so that's what's going on in the table of nations. All right, we're almost done with this passage. So it says this. Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. And when they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. Israel said to Joseph, Now I'm ready to die because I've seen for myself that you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and his father's household, I will go up and speak to Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who are living in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds. They tend livestock and they have brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own. And when Pharaoh calls you in and asks, what is your occupation? You should answer, your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as your fathers did. When you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for, then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to Egyptians. One of my favorite movies of all time is uh, The Pink Panther 2, with uh, uh, Steve Martin, uh, who plays this guy named Inspector Clouseau. He's got a terrible French accent. That's pretty much the best part about it. And so he's got this little sidekick named Pontan, and he has to train him how to like, come up into the ways of policing. So he sits him down for his first interview, and he asks him a bunch of questions. He says, what did your father do? And Pontan goes, he was a police officer. And he's like, well, what about his father before him? And he's like, police. He's like, before him, law enforcement. Before him, he was a judge. Before him, police officer. What about your father's 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 father? And he goes, police. And he goes, what about your father's 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 father? And he goes, well, they were farmers. And he goes, ah! So the little Ponton has come to me for to learn. Okay, okay, you know. You see? So, they really drill this here with the shepherds thing. They make a big note that the occupation of these transient people are going to be shepherds. And never to forget that their occupation is to be shepherds. And, and we're reminded, as we look back on the pages of Genesis, that really, that's because they were always shepherds. Like Abraham was a shepherd and... and he moved from place to place. He was itinerant, and he had, you know, cattle. And that was really how God communicated him about where to go and who was really his God and what his promises were all about. And, and then it says that Isaac was a shepherd and Jacob was a shepherd, and they were always shepherds, and shepherds were detestable to Egyptians because shepherds had to trust in who was leading them. And shepherds 
was a great way for God to communicate the promises and the, and the, and the faithfulness of God. And not only that, as we look back on the pages of Genesis, we're reminded that the reason why these guys were shepherds is because it reveals that God ultimately is the shepherd, right? Who was it the one that led Abraham in and out of Canaan and steered him away from Lot? And who was it really that got Isaac the wife? Who was it that kept them out of Sodom and Gomorrah? And who was it that led Jacob in and out of Laban's tent, right? Who was it that uh, caused Joseph to get on the cart and into the prison and then said that God was with them? Who was it other than the fact that God was with them and God was always their shepherd? And so the scripture wants to communicate to us that to thrive in Egypt, you would need to be rooted in the soil of shepherding. There's a book called uh, Hurt by Chap Clark uh, that I read when I was a youth pastor. And it was a diagnostic, really, of our generation, the millennial generation. And the book was called Hurt because it was talking about how our generation grew up in programs more than shepherding. Like our kids, our, our parents wanted our kids to do better than them, and so they got us real early into like piano lessons and karate and football and soccer, and we were just getting them busy because like, we really had this opportunity, and so they were going to send us out there to kind of be raised by some of these programs. And they said the faulty problem was is that these programs didn't have the kids' interests in mind. It has the program because programs are there to win. And so the purpose of you showing to the program was to be the quarterback and to be the soccer player and to be, you know, learn the kata at the dojo or whatever, but it really wasn't about the kid. And so what happened is, is that the kid lived in a shepherdless environment. And what the book ultimately says is that the kids found their shepherding, but they found it in each other. That the latchkey generation had to find shepherding in each other, and that that's where they, they made their cliques and their little groups and their breakfast clubs or whatever it is that they did to find shepherding, but really they were sheep without shepherds. They were uncovered sheep is what we grew up in. That's what the latchkey generation is, right? And so what the scripture is reminding us, lest we forget, is that to thrive in Babylon and to thrive in Egypt, we have to remember our first occupation is to be shepherds. And that the sense that, you know, some of us here, are, you know, maybe are plumbers or electricians, pastors, right? Or um, some of us are teachers and some of us uh, work in the medical field and all these are occupations. But our first occupation, like our father's father's father before us, is to be a shepherd. Because shepherds work with, num with names and not numbers. And shepherds stop for the one. And shepherds, lead in and out of the valley and into the, uh, into, into the promise and care for the people that they're with. And so he's, he's telling them in this promise, as you go into Egypt, never forget your original. Never forget your original occupation is to be a shepherd. Jesus says that there's three kinds of people in the world. Jesus says that there are, um, there are wolves, there are uh, hired hands, and there are shepherds. He says that wolves are the ones that come and feed themselves on people. Do you know anybody that feeds themselves on people? And they just eat through people and spit them out and just use them as the next one for whatever reason, whether it be power or sex or money or any other reason, right? There's many people that are wolves and they're not just in the church. And then there's hired hands. And hired hands don't care for the sheep. They are there for today and they're gone tomorrow. And as soon as the wolf attacks, they, they scatter and flee. But the shepherd is the one that lays their life down for the, for the sheep. And God is in, in, impressing on this, per, this group of people that, that shepherding is not only what you do, it is who you are. And so he would say to us in the church, like to thrive in the middle of of Babylon or thrive in the middle of Greenville or in Egypt, um, it is to be rooted in the soil of shepherding. And that, that uh, we do have deacons and elders here, and those guys are over shepherds, and I'm a pastor here, I guess by profession, but ultimately, no matter what our occupation is, we are all shepherds. And if you're here for the first time, I want to let you know that um, we exist um, to be shepherds to one another. And, and we go through our struggles and our trials and our, and our shame and our pain 
And the scripture is saying that the way that we make it through Egypt and out the other side again is not with programs, but with shepherding. Not with business, but with family. And, um, and we are all, all shepherds in that way. The book uh, Hurt goes on to talk about how trauma, both capital T trauma and lowercase t trauma, says that trauma actually, in the context of shepherding, makes the person stronger. The person experiencing trauma in isolation will be broken, right? But the person experiencing uh, trauma within the middle of a caring uh, community and within shepherding, they're bolder and built for it. That's the difference. That's the difference. And, and so this is what he wants us to remember in his famous parting last words. Don't quarrel. Stay surrendered, right? And be a shepherd. These are the three soils that he had, has us planted in. And so there's a reason, if you think about it, and uh, it's up on the screen here for the intentional question. You might consider it today. Um, but I believe the scriptures are asking us this morning, um, uh, how are you being planted? Because their story is our story. And he's not wasting any of that pain. He's leading us to that well that we might come to that solemn place to realize that everything we have is not enough. And he was the one that wrote the story in the first place. And so he's planting us. He's planting us in a brand new soil. The old is gone and the new has come. And in this new nature, we do not act like uh, the Egypt neighbors that we have. We act like the family of God that he's called us to back to that place, that promise. And if he is who he says he is and he's doing what he says he's gonna do, then he's planting us in these three things. He's planting us from the soil of hostility and idolatry in the place of unity. I wonder who he's bugging you with. I wonder who's annoying you with. I wonder who he's calling you to go and call again and forgive for the 77th time, seventh time, because that's not an accident. It's on purpose. He's planted you next to Egypt so that you would have to surrender to unity to put you in the soil from control to surrender. It's way easier, right, to just jump in and control everything and use your personality and your quip and your goodwill to try and make things happen or just to lay back and let somebody else do it, but to surrender and say, I can't, but you can, to live in that school system, to live in the business place, right, to live in uh, your neighborhood and to stand firm and not to be hostile and attack and not to give in and let go, but to stand firm in that place of surrender is a difficult place that would require the Spirit of God to be planted in the soil of surrender. And lastly, that we would not be a, a group of employees that would be a place of shepherding. Why is it that he would have us planted in all these three things? Because ultimately he is showing us that what he's planting in the middle of Egypt and enemies is family and not business. He is planting a family. Like, my kids are 14 to 4. You know, we've gone through lots of different phases. And yeah, family means, you know, going to soccer practice and family means um, going on vacation. The family means work and family means school and it means a lot of things. But all the things that we do doesn't mean who the family is. And what gets bad is when the cart gets before the horse and the family becomes about the brand, like the church becomes about the brand. It becomes about the mechanism and it just becomes about the program. And we got a programmed generation that isn't shepherded. And so the unity is really just conformity. It's a t-shirt, it's a slogan, it's a thing that we all say. And, and it doesn't actually have what Ephesians 4 says is the bond of peace through the spirit of God. The place that comes when I surrender to the spirit, I also am surrendering to your welfare. I'm surrendering to the one another promise. And, and there is no short circuit to that place. The surrender to the Spirit is the only place for unity because unity isn't political. It is spiritual. Unity comes from the Spirit. It's the reward of the Spirit. It's not a, um, or no, it's a, it's a gift of the Spirit. It's not a reward of organization. And so ultimately, he's planting us in these soil because there's no shortcut to family. And, and, and there will be times in and out of seasons in churches when we, when we really go after things that identify us as, you know, whatever, specific church callings and culture, you know, like days that we're going to go after intercession and times that we're going to go after the Bible, like in Bible study and times that we're going to go after healing and times that we're going to go after groups and all these things are things that we do, but they are not who we are. We are brothers and sisters serving brothers and sisters. We are shepherds serving shepherds. 
And there's nothing fancier or easier or more complicated or more sophisticated than that because we are brothers, serving brothers, saying the, saying the here I am promise. That is who the family of God is. And there are seasons, but that season doesn't define the soil. The soil is always the soil of surrender. And who we are all the time is those that are devoted, devoted to fellowship and the breaking of bread into the scriptures and to fellowship and the breaking of bread into the scriptures, the repeatable rhythms of family that cause health and vibrance. This is the only place for a city to thrive in the middle of, uh, for a church to thrive in the middle of the desert. And so I wonder where God has been, uh, been planting and planting you. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.